Psalm 119 describes the glory and the beauty of God's word as well as his fellowship. Listen to the words. I have done justice and righteousness. Do not let me or lead me to my oppressors. Be surety for thy servant for good. Do not let the arrogant oppress me. My eyes fail with longing for thy salvation and for thy righteous word. Deal with thy servant according to thy loving kindness and teach me thy statutes. I am thy servant. Give me understanding that I may know thy testimonies. It is time for the Lord to act, for they have broken thy law. Therefore, I love thy commandments above gold, yes, above fine gold. Therefore, I esteem right all thy precepts concerning everything. I hate every false way. The plea to the, of the psalmist right in the middle of this is, Lord, I'm thy servant. Give me understanding for the sole purpose that I may know thy testimonies. Fellowship with you, serve you. That's the idea behind know. And uh, that is our privilege this morning and indeed our prayer. Let me invite you to turn your, with me in your Bibles to the book of Zechariah. And uh, just a couple back, uh, books back from the Gospel of Matthew, if you know it. Zechariah chapter um, uh, 5 is the, the text that we currently are on. I encourage you to locate your, your inserts um, in your bulletin and use that to follow along and take notes and read the quotes. Although I don't think I have any quotes on this one. Um, but anyways, follow along, and, and by God's grace, may we learn together around God's Word. So this is the seventh of eight visions that God gave to Zechariah in the opening chapters of this prophecy, and uh, it's our privilege to look now at the seventh vision um, and uh, um, fellowship thereby with our Lord. So if you would, please stand together with me out of reverence and respect for the reading of, God, uh, of God's Word. Hear now the word of King Jesus. Then the angel who was speaking with me went out and said to me, Lift up now your eyes and see what this is going forth. And I said, What is it? And he said, This is the ephah going forth. Again, he said, This is their appearance in all the land. And behold, a lead a cover was lifted up, <clears throat> and this is a woman sitting inside the ephah. Then he said, this is wickedness. And he threw her down into the middle of the, of the ephah and cast the lead weight on its opening. Then I lifted up my eyes and looked and there were two women who were coming out with the wind in their wings. Now they had wings like the wing, wings of a stork and they lifted up the ephah between the earth and the heavens. And I said to the angel who was speaking with me, where are they taking the ephah? And, he, and then he said to me, to build a temple for her in the land of Shinar. And when it is prepared, she will be set there on her pedestal. That's Father, reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your word and the privilege of fellowship. The privilege that we have right now to fellowship with you and with your open books in our laps. God, we pray. Draw near, Holy Spirit, and open our eyes and enable us, O oh Lord, to feed upon these, your word, your word, this, uh, your word. Grow us, O oh God. Give me grace to preach with fidelity and clarity. And Lord, may your word go forth powerfully, giving us unction that we might indeed fellowship and be a people transformed by the renewing of our minds. We entrust this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated.
Aren't you tired of sinning? There are times in our lives where we take pleasure in our sin. It's one of the characteristics of sin, Hebrews 11.25, it's pleasurable. But ultimately, sin is nothing more to us as Christians but regret. Paul wrote these words in Romans 7, That which I am doing I do not understand, for I'm practicing what I would like, what I uh, would like, uh, for I'm not practicing what I would like uh, to do, but I'm doing the very thing which I hate. If you've walked with Christ very long, you know that struggle. You know that, that conflict of soul. He later on describes it. He says, I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. A strange contradiction. When you and I are engaging in sin, we love it. Yes, there's that warning light at the back of our minds saying, don't do this, don't do this. But as Paul de describes it, there's this thing that it, it takes over us and we want to do it. We don't want to do it, but we want to, uh, to do it. But then God wakes us up by his spirit, gives us the gift of repentance. And, and we wake up and we realize the very thing that we were doing that we thought we loved, we hated. We hate and we, and we loathe it. That's the struggle of being a Christian in this world. And the answer in Romans 7, as you well know, is Romans 7, 24. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Well, the answer is very simple. Jesus Christ is the answer. But you realize Jesus Christ is the answer is as a diamond, which is multifaceted. For us, Jesus Christ as the answer means something very uh, specific with regards to grace and sin and how those inter, uh, I mean, uh, relate. But for God, his view of our sin and, our, and his view of sin in this world is a little bit different than our practical day in and day out struggle with it. And why that's important is because the vision before us this morning is a couplet. We've looked at these visions. We're on now the seventh vision. The sixth vision, you will recall, and the seventh revolve around the maintenance of the covenant community as relates to sin. The last section, vision number um, six, was a vision where, which, which called God's people to get involved in each other's lives that we would not sin, that we would flee from sin, that we would repent. It calls us to be a people who would be repentant. But now the seventh vision shifts the focus from God to, to God's perspective. Six is our perspective. Seven is God's. Now, the context, as you know, is this. God's people were in the Babylonian captivity for 70 years. And while they were there, the generation became paganized. Most stayed when the time came that God said, go home. And only a very small amount of people actually came to Palestine. We understand that they were the spiritual Green Berets. They were the ones who loved Christ in spite of the deadness of the land in which they lived. So they went there to live as, as aliens and strangers, even more, to uh, struggle there. And brothers and sisters, they, they could not have imagined how hard it would have been. By the time they got there, six or seven months later, long walk there, they were, um, they, were, they were opposed. They entered into this horrible famine. Um, it was difficult. And so just 18 short years later, 
these spiritual green berets had themselves become just like their family members, just like their kinsmen in Babylon. As one commentator said, you can take God's people out of Babylon, but, God, but at this moment, Babylon had not been taken out of God's people. And so they were struggling with selfishness. They, they got to the point where they said, who cares about the future? What matters is now. Don't worry about that temple. Don't worry about that uh, city. Let's make sure our home and our lives are as best as they can be because brothers and sisters, you live 30, 40, 50 years and it's gone. Get the most out of life that you can. And so God came with Haggai, the first prophet, and he encouraged, he used this older man to encourage God's people to build, to rebuild that temple. And four years later, 516 BC, it was built. But then he raised up a younger man, Zechariah. And this is the man who basically God used to shepherd the thoughts, the souls, the minds of God's people. Haggai dealt with the building of the temple. Zechariah deals with their mindset, their worldview, what they want, their values, their goals, how they're to live, how they're to uh, uh, think. And so, again, vision six and seven um, are revolving around how ought we to handle sin in the body of Jesus Christ. Vision six, last time, this morning, Vision 7, what is God's perspective of sin in the body? What is God's perspective of sin in your life this day? When God sees you struggling with sin, Romans 7, what does God think? What does God do? Vision 7 answers that. Notice with me, if you would, first, we're introduced to the banality, the commonness of wickedness. Okay, notice with me verse 5. Then the angel who was speaking with me went out and said, Lift up now your eyes and see what this is going forth. Vision three and four, I'm sorry, four and five were in the temple. Now the scene is changing. We're back out amongst God's people. And the angel says, Lift up your eyes and look at the next vision as it pertains now to the people of God, not in the temple as worshipers, but in the community as livers and servers of God. And so he says, lift up your eyes, verse 6. Zechariah says, what is it? He can't see it. It's a far off distant. It's not clear. The vision's blurry. So he says, I can't quite make it out. What am I seeing? And the angel says, this is the ephah going forth. And he said, this is is their appearance in the land. Now, the moment you, if you were living in that time, you heard the word ephah, you knew in a moment we're talking about a measurement. Because an ephah was a large basket used in commerce to measure grain. So if you were to read here, I saw a scale, you'd immediately think, oh, something's going to be weighed. Well, that's the same thought that God's people would have had with this ephah. It was a unit of measure the way you bought grain. You couldn't buy grain on a scale. You bought it in a large basket. And the largest of all baskets in commerce in that day was this ephah, which was a, t a five to 10 gallon massive basket that would, that would hold a lot of grain. So holding a lot of grain, you're thinking, man, this thing's massive. It holds a, a, a ton. Well, this is an ephah that he sees. But he also sees three other things. 
Or better yet, he's told three other things about this, what he sees. He sees, he says, notice how the text uses this three times. This is the ephah. This is the appearance, or if you've got the ESV, the iniquity. This is the woman. This is wickedness. Notice the, the four this is. First of all, the ephah, this measuring unit. God is measuring something amongst his people. Notice the next phrase, New American Standard. This is their appearance. Now, in the Hebrew, the word is ayin, which is the Hebrew word for eye, eyeball. Okay? And it doesn't make sense here. This is their eye. I'm going to measure something. This is their eye. So, so um, uh, commentators and Bible translators stretch the definition of eye to mean, well, what does your eye see? Your eye sees things, and therefore this is what it sees. This is their appearance. Problem is, there's other Hebrew words for appearance. And so it's a, it's a stretch to call this, this is their eye. Well, then, years back, a commentator um, discovered, discovered, made this observation that the word ayin, you got the Hebrew there? Hebrew has, has typically has three letters to it, and the little thing above and the little things below are vowels. Okay, so just look at the, at the three consonants of ayin. Looks like a V in the far right, then your little tiny apostrophe, and then this long little like hook, or this long little like cane. That's ayin. Well, you know what? If you just had those three, and see that middle consonant that looks like an apostrophe? If you were to draw the, the bottom of that a little bit longer, it would change letters from an ayin to a vav or a wow, depending on your classical or, or modern. It would be a vav. Uh, which would be avon in the Hebrew, which is the word for iniquity. That's what ESV, RSV, and the, and the NIV have chosen to translate this on. They believe that the original really was iniquity and not I. And I believe that too. Most modern commentators believe that too as well. What do you see? I see an ephah. And what is that ephah? It is the iniquity of the people of God. That's what they're seeing here. Now, this is God's perspective. So we carry on, verse 7. And behold, a lead cover was lifted so that Zechariah could have a peek at what's in this ephah, which is their sin. He's in a peek at the people's sin. And, the, and this is a woman sitting inside the ephah. Then he said, this is wickedness. Real quick note here. Some have, made, have raised the concern that this is sexist. That God is attributing a woman with wickedness is sexist. And maybe that is why in the Eastern world to today, there's this, there's this male-dominant culture. And, and so this is sexist. God is, is a, a, a God is the author of sexism. And brothers and sisters, those who say such things are ignorant, really. They're ignorant of Hebrew language. The word for wickedness, risha, is feminine. If you're going to personify a feminine concept, it has to be a woman. Just like if you're going to personify a male concept, it has to be a man. So we talk about Lord Muck and Lady Luck. And that doesn't make us think sexism. Lord Muck, well, what, you think men are mucky? No, it's just how we, it's an expression. It's a picture. And that's all that this is. Furthermore, the word for woman in the Hebrew is isha. And the word for wickedness, or better yet, iniquity in the Hebrew is risha. 
So it's this beautiful sounding, what do you see? I see a Isha, which is Risha. I see this feminized form, this form that is feminine in the Hebrew coming to life. And what is that form? It's a woman. And from that point, you got to see immediately the way it describes it here and elsewhere. This woman is beautiful. This woman is good looking. This woman has so many virtues to it, seemingly uh, seeming uh, virtues. What do you see? I see this woman and it is, as the text says, it's wickedness. Now, the moment you read that word wickedness in the Bible, you got to realize it's not just one of many words for sin. There are many words for sin in the Hebrew. Wickedness describes a combination of sin. Okay, a conglomeration of sin. So in the, in, from the Jewish perspective, biblical uh, perspective, wickedness has an identified form throughout Scripture. We're not just talking about an act of rebellion or, or an act of omission or commission, right? That would be sin. We're talking about a very a quantifiable, specific nuance behind the idea of wickedness. And by the very end, you're going to get what that nuance is. But for right now, we're going to generally describe it as simply wickedness in Scripture is this um, uh, uh, conglomeration, a personification of a combination of sin, of sins, which in Scripture, wickedness as an identity, as this thing, is variously described. Proverbs 7 gives us incredible description of wickedness. Let me give it to you uh, quickly here. Notice with me, I'm just going to read Proverbs 7 and listen to it as I read through Proverbs uh, 7. First of all, the appearance of wickedness is not ugly or something which we naturally would recoil from. Wickedness is desirable. Listen to Romans 7. Or uh, Proverbs seven. For at the window of my house, I looked in, and out through the, the through my lattice, and I saw among the naive, I discerned among the youths a young man lacking sense, passing through the street near her house. Why is it a her? Because it's not about wickedness, a feminine. And he takes the way to her house in the twilight, in the evening, in the middle of the night, and in the darkness. And behold, a woman comes to meet him dressed as a harlot and cunning of heart. First thing you need to realize here from Proverbs 7 is wickedness is good-looking and desirable. There's going to be an appeal to the flesh when it comes to wickedness. You know, when we think of wickedness, we tend to think of it as this, you know, dark, smoke-infested, opiate room with, with dead people on, you know, the horrible, ugly, smelly, stinky mess. That's not wickedness in Scripture. Wickedness in Scripture is described as this beautiful... Well, think of the uh, description of if Satan took over a town back, what was it, the 20s, uh, 1920s? If Satan took over a town, what would it look like? The, the answer was it would have a church on every corner, white picket fences, no trash in the streets. It would be beautiful. It would be glorious. It would be great. Everyone would want to live there, but you'd never hear the gospel. That would be a town taken over by Satan. And that's what you see of wickedness. It's not something that you look at and go, oh, it's ugly. You look at it and go, hmm, interesting. Notice, uh, secondly, she is, she is fun and makes herself quite available. Proverbs 7, 11, she is boisterous and rebellious. Her feet do not remain at home. She is now in the streets, now in the squares, lurks by every corner. Man, she's a fun girl. She runs, she runs with the guys. She's boisterous. 
She's not quiet in Demore. She comes with us. We can go out gallivanting, and she's right there. She's fun. Thirdly, from outward appearance, she's not dirty, but clean. Proverbs 7, um, uh, 13. So she seizes him and kisses him. And with a brazen face, she says to him, I was due to offer peace offerings today. Today I have paid my vows. In other words, she's not in sin. She's morally pure. She's cleansed before God. You think this is not a big deal. I can do this and, and, and have everything else. She looks clean. Fourthly, she promises the high life. 16, I spread my couch with coverings with colored linens of Egypt. Very few Jews were privileged to sit on a couch with covered linens of Egypt. I have sprinkled my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Rare. Come, let us drink our fill of love until morning. Let us delight ourselves with uh, caresses. Brothers and sisters, she promises the high life. Man, if you, it, man, I can live as a Christian and be a nobody and be persecuted, or I can enjoy life. That's wickedness. Fifth, she always comes across as being safe. For the man is not home. He's gone on a long journey. He has taken a bag of money with him. At full moon, he will, he will come home. In other words, it's safe. No one's going to catch you. You can do this in the privacy of your home and no one's going to know. Who's going to know? Wickedness is that beautiful, good-looking thing which promises fun, no consequences, absolutely none, and uh, uh, safety, complete and total uh, safety. Brothers and sisters, what I've just described to you is the definition of banal, the banality of wickedness. It looks beautiful, but it is not it is, it is um, a, a, a wretched plague, as we'll see on our, our next point. And that, perhaps, no doubt, is why God's people, throughout redemptive history and church history, and especially during this time, fell. How could they have been so zealous to leave Babylon, to come here only to just relax, or to reflect exactly what their family members and countrymen were like in Babylon? How? Because, brothers and sisters, they were home. They weren't watching and praying. This was supposed to be, we're, we're, we're back at the promised land. So their guard was down. They weren't looking for wickedness. They were just living and responding to life. And life, the, the uh, uh, ball that, that life threw at them, this curveball, they hit it out of the park by saying, let's just focus on our homes and have a nice house, a little bit of opulence where we live, and not worry about the kingdom of God, and not worry about the temple of God, and not, and not um, um, do things that make the world hate us so much. Brothers and sisters, they, they fell because they didn't, they didn't recognize the enemy in their midst. So notice the banality of wickedness. It begins here. Notice with, with us then verse 8b, the da it's danger. Then he said, this is wickedness. And he threw her back down is the idea. He threw her down into the middle of the ephah and cast the lead weight on its opening. The language here, brothers and sisters, is, is fraught with conflict. The language is this, is, this, is this war. So the moment that that lead covering is opened, the implication is wickedness got out and wickedness began to spread and wickedness began to to talk and, and began to just um, evade the scene. And so the angel has to take this lead weight and throw the woman 
back down. It's a violent word. It's the word used of Moses when he took the Ten Commandments and threw them to crush them. He took the wickedness and, and manhandled it and threw it violently back into the ephah and then threw the 75-pound lead cover back on top of it. Okay, the idea behind this is, man, this woman, this wickedness is virulent. The most um, uh, um, virulent, dangerous virus known to mankind. If you allow it just a little bit of a peak, it's going to spread everywhere. You see that in Scripture. 2 Timothy 2, But avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. That's the picture of sin. It spreads like gangrene. Jude 22 says, And have mercy on some who are doubting. Save others, snatch them out of the fire. And on some, have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. When you're going to go and do the last vision, vision six, and help a brother or sister struggling with their sin, man, look to yourself, lest you too be tempted. Wickedness, do not go into it thinking, hey, I'm a godly man. I can handle this. Go into it realizing whatever you're dealing with, you, what, I'm sorry, whatever they're dealing with, you could easily do. And that stops from being judgmental but rather humble and submissive and a servant because you realize wickedness is virulent. It will spread like gangrene. And that's the idea here when he says he threw it down with violence because you don't play with sin. Brothers and sisters, I referenced this in my introduction. One of the greatest pleasures that we have as sinners is our sin. And it's because of that we can look upon sin casually Every one of us have what I call sanctified sin, right? In your life, there are sins in your life that are not a big deal. And what bothers you about other people is when they have a sin that is a big deal to you, right? I've never been late in my life. Punctuality is one of my chief virtues. And I cannot stand it when people are late. They are such horrible, you know, right? We, we, whatever we don't struggle with, we have a hard time with other people struggling with. But what we struggle with, it's not a big deal because the reality is it's not really a sin. I mean, it's a small imperfection. It's not a big deal. Brothers and sisters, there's no such thing as a small sin. Every sin can take your, your life. Proverbs 7 ends with these words. Suddenly he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter or as one in fetters to the discipline of a fool until an arrow pierces through his liver as a bird hastens to the snare so he does not know that it will cost him his life. That's the naive who thinks that sin is no big Deal. It will cost you your life. One peak, one peak, one thought, one thought will cost you, could cost you your life. So notice, secondly, that the danger of wickedness is so dangerous, this angel manhandles it violently, throws it back in. And that leads us then to God's, I could have put on my outline, twofold response to wickedness. When you think of your sin and your struggle by grace, you think of this is how you, how you and I should respond to our sin. How does God respond to your sin? How does he respond to our sin as a corporate body? And how does he re- respond to sin in this world? This is where this vision climaxes. Notice with me verse 9. Then I lifted up my eyes and looked, and there were two women were coming out with the wind in their wings. If you thought God was sexist, verse 9 should, should change your mind. Because while the villain is... Risha, which is feminine form of a noun, which is wickedness, and therefore a woman personified. The heroes here are two women. 
to come and save the day, if you will, or at least transport. Notice, then I lifted up my eyes and looked, and there were two women were coming out with the wind in their wings, and they had wings like the wings of a stork, and they lifted up the ephah between the earth and the heavens. Real quickly, a couple things. The, all of this is very picturesque. So there's, 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 there's significance in this vision that God's giving Zechariah. And as a Jew, he would have understood that significance. First, would you notice these storks that he saw, the stork had, or these women, um, had wings of wind. Wind in their wings. What is that? Well, that's a literal translation of ruach. But in the Hebrew, the word ruach is much more than the wind. If you have done a study of that word, which I have done a study of that word many times before, you'll know that that word is the word used of the breath of God. It is the word to use to convey something that is absolutely, um, solely of divine origin. So when the word of God says the word of God is God breathed, theopneustos, it's God breathed, Paul is using the strongest language he had at his disposal to say the word of God is, is, is sourced from God, not man. Man may have had a part in, 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 in being a prophet or, or an apostle, but it's the source. Ultimately, God is the, is, is the one who uh, produces it. That's the word breath, ruach. It's through ruach that God created the world through his breath. It's through ruach that God made man from the ground. It's through ruach that God parted the, the Red Sea. Look at those passages. Every one of them describes God's breath. The ruach of God is that which accomplishes these great things. And get this, because of that, guess what the Spirit of God is called in Scripture? Ruach. He's the holy ruach. He's the ability. He is God. So when we read about wind in their wings, immediately what comes to our mind is God is behind these women. God is within these women. God is the one lifting up this basket. God is the one doing this. Not man, not an angel, but God. Secondly, would you notice, wind in their wings, and they lift the basket up between the earth and the heavens. Now, brothers and sisters, biblically speaking, if you were to lift something up between the earth and the heavens and follow that picture throughout the Bible, you would come to a very important Redemptive theme. Can you guess what it is? John 12, 32. If I be lifted up from the earth, between the earth and heaven, I will draw all men to myself. But he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. Jesus Christ was lifted up between heaven and earth. John 3, 13. And Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. It's the same idea. Even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes may in him have eternal life. The imagery, you can't miss it. What does God do with sin amongst his people? We think maybe God looks upon us and says, I am so disgusted with you again, Christian. How many times have you confessed that sin to me? 50,000? I'm sick of it. I'm done listening to your silly confessions. When you mean it, come back next time. Otherwise, don't come back at all. That's what we think God may be thinking about us when we've confessed the same sin over and over and over. You know what God's answer is? He lifts up your sin. He places it 
The text doesn't have to say he puts it between heaven and earth. He could have said he lifted it up and brought it to Shinar. He doesn't. He lifts it up and places it to the place of redemption. God forgives your sin. When he sees your sin, he immediately, it's forgiven in Jesus Christ. It's incredible. And then we read this incredible phrase, um, uh, the, the, the metaphor, the wings of a stork. The significance of this, brothers and sisters, is multi, on multi-levels. Storks migrated from Palestine to Babylon. So it's appropriate that it be the stork that would bring it. Secondly, storks were powerful birds with powerful wings. So that would make sense. But then thirdly, unlike the eagle, who have powerful wings, the stork was known culturally in that day as being a gentle, kind you know, eagles parent their kids, don't you, right? An eagle that's on the, on the side of a cliff, and the mother uh, eagle comes in and says, well, adolescence, what do you know? Already here. It's time, to, it's time to learn how to fly. Okay, mother, teach me how. You got it. She kicks, she, she pushes the, the eaglet out of the side of a cliff, and it, it free falls to its death, and swoops down and catches it on eagle's wings. That's what that, that imagery is, right? That's not how storks do it. That's, that's violent. Storks, they're known for their gentleness and kindness. How God deals with your sin, he's gentle and kind. He lifts it up. He doesn't break a bruised reed. You've confessed that sin 50,000 times. Confess it another time and another time. You can't outweary God. You can't weary God. His, his, his grace is eternal. So he comes and graciously picks up the sin of the community. This is my people's sin, he says in verse 6, 7. This is it. And what does God do? He lifts it up to the middle between heaven and earth, right where Christ was crucified. All of this, brothers and sisters, flows from Zechariah chapter 3 and Joshua, the high priest's forgiveness. Flows right from there. Perfect sense. So he lifts it up and then he, um, he forgives it. And then we pick it up in verse 10. And I said to the angel who was speaking with me, where are they taken? The um, ephah. And he said to me to build a temple for her in the land of Shinar. And when it is prepared, she will be set there on her own pedestal. The language here is loaded with biblical significance. First of all, the word for temple is a ziggurat. You've got a picture in your, in your notes. Oh, that would have been um, what is being referenced here. The, the, the bringing this wickedness to a temple um, in the land of Shinar. Now, the land of Shinar is Babylon. So why not just say Babylon? Because that's what everyone called it. No one called it the land of Shinar at this time. There's only really one biblical ref- one significant biblical reference when you think of the land of Shinar. And it's Genesis 11. That's what's being referenced here. That's what's being alluded to here. Let me read it. Now, the whole earth had the same language and the same words. And it came about as they journeyed east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used bricks for stone, and they used tar for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a ziggurat, a tower whose top will reach into heaven. And let us make for ourselves a name. Now, you know, Genesis 11, after the flood, first thing after the flood, was that there, there came to this earth the first formal um, um, false, uh, false religion, 
organized false religion. This is Genesis 11. And it is the, the essence of mysticism, right? We've talked about this in Sunday school. Babylon, Babel, was the, was the beginning of mysticism, which then spread when God spread these people throughout the course of the world, this false religion. So in Sunday school recently, we've been talking about how there's only two religions, biblical Christianity and mysticism. Now there's also works, works righteousness and salvation by grace. But if you look at it from this uh, perspective, Genesis 11, there's only two. There's biblical approach to God. He's a person, a being, who should be honored, loved, adored, fellowshiped with, or Babel, which is mysticism, which is God's a force to be experienced, enjoyed, delighted in, whatever. Um, that's it. Well, this mysticism spread, and not only spread throughout the world by the people of God, the idea of God's a force, but also spread into two, um, two industries, governmental and economic. So from Genesis 11 on, get this, brothers and sisters, Babylon became synonymous with the world. You understand that? So when you think of Babylon, in the Bible, you think of a geographic location. Well, Babylon was a geographic location, but it then came to be used throughout the Bible of the world in which we live. Do not be conformed to the world. And now what is that world? It's the, whole, it's the unholy triumvirate of the government, economic, religious people. And it was spread. Listen to Revelation 17. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke with me saying, come here, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot. He's talking about wickedness. And wickedness so happens to be Babylon. Okay, they're one and the same. I will share with you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters in whom the kings of the earth committed acts of immorality and those who dwell on the earth were made to drink with the wine of her, of her immorality. That's the commerce. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast full of blasphemous names having seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was clothed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a gold cup full of abominations and of the unclean things of her, of her immorality. And upon her forehead a name was written, a mystery. Okay? Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. Revelation is describing wickedness. What does God do with wickedness? He's making a statement to his people. Wickedness resides in the world. I, I, I sent wickedness to Babylon. And Babylon is not necessarily the geographic location as it is, Genesis 11, all the way through the Babylon, the whore of this world, which is the combination of the, of the, of the um, kingdoms, merchandise, economic, religious. And in the end time, we know that that's going to be this, this unholy triumvirate, which will uh, which is today reigning and ruling. So he wants his people from this to see two things. One, what does God do with your sin? He takes it away. Graciously, compassionately, kindly, gently. Secondly, he has, he has taken wickedness and it now is the, it, it inhabits and houses 
the world in which we live, the governments, the economic. Now, I'm not, I'm not being neo-platonic uh, saying that evil is, 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 is in this. What I'm saying is that it now is what is what, what Paul would call the world. I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies a living holy sacrifice. Do not be conformed to the world. Do not be, be conformed to Babylon. Do not be conformed to wickedness. Now, the prophecy ends there. And God's people would walk away saying, got it. God forgives our sin. Let us not act like Babylonians. Let us not be like our brothers and sisters still living in Babylon who have been paganized. Let us come out from, the, uh, from Babylon and let us live as a distinct, holy people unto God. That's what this vision is. But brothers and sisters, I can't end this without at least giving you the rest of the story. The, the, the people of God in this day would not have known the rest of this story, but we do know because the rest is Scripture. Turn with me, if you would, to Revelation 18, would you please? Because you don't realize, the people of God didn't realize, but when you read this prophecy or this vision, you realize God is, is setting us up for his end game. He's proclaiming wickedness is now associated with Babylon, the whore of Babylon. And what is God going to do? And he knows what he's going to do. Revelation 18. Follow along with me. I'll read it. After these things, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority and the earth was illumined with his glory and he cried out with a mighty voice saying fallen fallen is babylon the great and she has become a dwelling place of demons and a, of, and a prison of every unclean spirit and a prison of every unclean and hateful bird and all the nations have drunk of the wine of the passion of her of her immorality this is wickedness the whore and the kings of the earth have committed acts of immorality with her and the merchants of the earth have become rich by the wealth of her sensuality. Notice the kings, the merchants, and the end is the, is the religion. And I heard uh, another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people. That's the call of Zechariah, in essence. Your sin is forgiven. Come out of Babylon. Right? You've left Babylon. Now let, let's let Babylon leave you, is the idea. Come out of her, that you may not participate in her sins, and that you may not receive of her plagues. For her sins have piled up as high as heavens, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back even as she was paid, and give back to her double according to her deeds in the cup which she has mixed. Mixed twice as much uh, for her. So in other words, as much as she has given grief, she's going to get twice that. To the degree that she glorified herself and lived sensuously, to the same degree give her torment and mourning. For she says in her heart, I sit as a queen. I'm not a widow. I will never see mourning. For this reason, in one day, her plagues will come, pestilence, mourning, famine, and she will be burned up with fire. For the Lord God who judges her is strong. This is an important statement. And the kings of the earth who committed acts of immorality and lived sensuously with her will weep and lament over her when they see the smoke of her burning standing at a distance because of the fear of her torment, saying, Woe, woe, the great city of Babylon, the, great, the strong city, for in one hour your judgment has come. Brothers and sisters, Revelation 20 or 18 is describing what God's going to do to Babylon in the last day. And, what's he, and notice, why is he attacking Babylon? Because that's where wickedness lies. Zechariah told us that. Zechariah sets us up to realize the world in which we live is not a friend of grace to help us on our way. This world is evil. And our, our call is to not be conformed to it, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds and therefore bring the truth of God's word to transform it while there's still time. 
not to bury our heads, but to bring truth and to not be infected by it, but to engage it and to transform it by the working of the Spirit of, of God. But realize, what is its ultimate end? Its ultimate end, brothers and sisters, is destruction, judgment. So, so God's people are now living in Palestine. Zechariah, back in Zechariah, I'll wrap it up here. They're living in Palestine. They're struggling in Palestine. And in their struggle, God says, the answer is not to look like the world. You may think, you know, let's just compromise. Work with the Samaritans on this one. Build the, the temple and change our worship to, to reflect their worship. And, and who cares? Let's just do what, let's just make life easy. God says, no, that's not the answer. The answer, brothers and sisters, is to know that every sin you've ever committed, God has forgiven. And secondly, God is against sin. So you and I need to be a community that is ever mindful of that and therefore takes sin very seriously in our own lives. And in the world in which we live, it's not a game. May we flee with confidence knowing that in the end, God will get the victory. I close with these thoughts. Brothers and sisters, wickedness, unlike Eastern mysticism, is not a force opposite God, opposite of evil. Wickedness is, is, is rebellion against God, which is subject to God's reign and rule. And in the end, God will have his way. I'm going to read you Revelation 18 and close. Rejoice over her, O heaven. He's talking about the fallen Babylon. Rejoice over her, O, o heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets. He's not calling us to rejoice in Babylon, but to rejoice over her dying corpse. That's the idea of Revelation. Rejoice O heaven and your saints and apostles and prophets, because God has pronounced judgment for you against her. God wins. In the end, God wins. Which means all the struggle you and I have to live on this earth is worth it. Did you hear me? I'll close with that, that statement. All the struggles you have on this earth is worth it. Praise be to God. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for this seventh vision. What incredible exhortation you gave your people at that time that they clearly heeded, but then they didn't. Give us the grace, O Lord, that our track record would not be as theirs, our fathers and mothers in the faith, but that, Lord, we would indeed heed your word and not call the world our ally. Um, and thus, as God's people eventually would, intermarry, intermarry with the women of that land. God, I pray you'd give us grace to not follow their pattern, but to be a people, unique, um, sanctified, peculiar unto you, wholly devoted to you, to love you, to serve you, to glorify you. Oh God, we pray, give us that sense of sobriety that comes from a heart that delights in you and the forgiveness that you always give. Beautifully pictured here in this prophecy that, Lord, we know in Jesus Christ is our joy and our strength. Thank you, Lord, for that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.